Hello and welcome to the 15th episode of the CCGI podcast. Last week we interviewed Dr. Debbie Wright, discussed the landscape of chiropractic in BC, as well as practical applications of guidelines and practice. This week we have the honour of interviewing Dr. Scott Haldeman, a true pioneer in the chiropractic profession. Before we interview Scott, Kent and I would like to discuss the Global Spine Care Initiative and World Spine Care. Hi Kent, how have you been? Uh, pretty good. I've got a, about a got a small mountain of work to get through and a and a teaspoon to get through it with so i'm i'm just plugging away fair enough how, about, how are you doing doing pretty well doing pretty well it's uh you know pretty good weather out here so I'm, i can't complain now um now today our, our listeners may not have heard about the global spine care initiative or world spine care can you tell us a bit about them sure um i'll start with world spine care so World Spine Care is a multinational, not-for-profit charitable organization founded in 2008 by today's guest, uh, Dr. Scott Haldeman. Um, I'm sure all of our listeners should know who Dr. Haldeman is. He's one of the preeminent figures in the assessment and treatment of spinal conditions, and his work has gone on certainly much longer than I've been involved in the profession. Uh, But World Spine Care was was launched by Dr. Haldeman to fill the the gap in the evidence-based treatment of musculoskeletal and especially spinal conditions that that we see in underserviced areas around the world. Their mission is to improve lives in underserved communities through sustainable, integrated, evidence-based spine care. Now, Global Spine Care Initiative is actually one of the initiatives of World Spine Care, and it's a research proposal created to reduce the global burden of disease and disability by bringing together leading healthcare scientists and specialists, government agencies, and other stakeholders to transform the delivery of spine care in underserved and low-income communities worldwide. Thanks, Kent. It helps to hear a description of of those two groups, and and for our listeners, they'll know now what we're talking about when we say WSC or GSCI. Uh, so let's move on to the next part of our show where we interview or we introduce today's guest. Dr. Scott Haldeman holds the positions of Adjunct Professor, Department of Epidemiology, School of Public Health at UCLA, and also Clinical Professor, Department of Neurology at UC Irvine. He is the past president of the North American Spine Society, American Back Society, the North American Academy of Manipulative Therapy, and the Orange County Neurological Society, and is currently Chairman Emeritus of the Research Council of the World Federation of Chiropractic. He is certified by the American Board of Neurology and Psychiatry and is a fellow of the Royal College of Physicians of Canada and a fellow of the Academy, American Academy of Neurology. He is a diplomat of the American Board of Electrodiagnostic Medicine, the American Board of Electroencephalography and Neurophysiology, and the American Board of Clinical Physiology. He also served on the U.S. Department of Health AHCPR Clinical Guidelines Committee on Acute Low Back Problems in Adults, as well as four other clinical guidelines committees. He presided over the Bone and Joint Decade 2000-2010 Task Force on Neck Pain and its Associated Disorders. Dr. Scott Haldeman sits on the editorial board of six journals and has published over 200 articles or book chapters, over 70 scientific abstracts, and has authored or edited seven books. He was awarded the Honorary Doctor of Humanities degree from the Southern California University of Health Sciences and an Honorary Doctor of Science degree from the Western States Chiropractic College. He received the David Selby Award from the North American Spine Society. As a resident of Santa Ana, California, he maintains an active clinical practice. So thank you for joining us. It truly is a privilege to be speaking with you today. Uh, Welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. 
we, we'd like to start off by asking you uh, our first question, which is uh, revolving, revolving around a recent publication by the Global Spine Care Initiative that discussed the application of evidence-based guidelines on the non-invasive management of back and neck pain to low- and middle-income communities. We're wondering, how can clinical practice guidelines be tailored for different patient populations and communities? Uh, let me give you some background on the Global Spine Care Initiative first. Mm -hmm. As uh, many, as we're going to discuss later, uh, the World Spine Care Charity is uh, trying to offer care to low and middle income, uh, well, actually low income countries, underserved communities. And we found that there's a significant variation in the type of patients that have come to these communities, that there's a significant variation in the resources that are available and the type of practitioners that are available. And so it, 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 you have to work in these communities within your resources, within the, the personnel, within the culture of the communities. We put together the Global Spine Care Initiative, which is 68 uh, clinicians and scientists from 22 countries from around the world. And <clears throat> this has taken about two or three years to put together. And it's starting to publish its article. It'll come out as a special issue of European Spine Journal and approximately 14 scientific papers uh, that will discuss various aspects develop a new model of care and describe how uh, the principles behind setting up a uh, model of care or a care pathway uh, for the management of spinal disorders in low and middle income countries. So this, this consisted of the, the, the net impact or the, the focus consisted of a number of papers. First of all, two papers on the global uh, uh, burden and the community burden of spinal disorders. And you have to start here. Um, the, the, we're actually entering a time when spine has become a major component. Spinal disability has become a major component of the burden of disease. Um, many people in your audience will probably already know about the global burden of disease studies, which have demonstrated that uh, 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 almost a billion people around the world have spine pain and <clears throat> approximately 5% of the world is disabled. Now, in low and middle income countries, there's some evidence now that uh, the, the incidence and the impact of spine and pain, and I'm talking about low back and neck pain, are some, are, are perhaps even greater than in high-income countries. And overall in the world, the global burden of disease said that low back pain is the number one cause of disability worldwide and neck pain is the number four cause of disability. And if you look at the impact, the actual burden, we're talking about spinal problems have a greater burden than HIV, AIDS, malaria, uh, respiratory infections, breast and lung cancer combined, Alzheimer's disease and diabetes. So we're talking about a very significant problem that the world's starting to look at. The second issue which always comes up is that dis disability disproportionately impacts women, the elderly, rural communities, and the lower quintile of the population. The third thing which is on the burden is that we now know that there's a strong comorbidity uh, 
of spinal problems with other diseases. If you do some data, we actually published or working on uh, and have presented uh, showing that uh, if you have uh, hypertension or cancer or liver disease or kidney disease or diabetes or depression, you actually have a much higher association with low back, for incidence of low back pain in uh, associated with this disease. So we're starting to look at spine problems, not as just low back pain and neck pain, a curable symptom or disease, depending how you want to put it, but that spinal problems have are part of the comorbid co problems uh, and are actually identifiable uh, or are, can be identified or be part of the general health of the individual. So the management of spine problems has to be also the management of general health. Uh, and this is one of the things that we're starting to realize and which is catapulting spine problems into the mainstream. The main concern when we're dealing with low and middle income countries is that we have to avoid most of the policies that have been implemented in high income countries, which have basically demonstrated uh, that the more treatment you offer people, the sicker they get. There's a whole series of, of articles showing that despite spending a lot more money on people with spine, especially low back pain, uh, you have a, a, a population that actually is more disabled. And then many of these conditions, we, some, I published a paper a while back showing that there are approximately 200 treatments being advertised right now, and I probably didn't get all of them, uh, and where people are saying, I have the cure for low back pain or for neck pain. And it's clear that this is not something that is uh, valid or likely to be uh, possible. So we're talking about a problem which is increase, increasing in its prevalence, increasing its level of disability, and increasing in the search for some kind of treatment. And when you look at this, you start thinking about all of these treatments that have been offered uh, people with spine problems. And you look at the opioids, and we're now in the midst of an opioid epidemic. 50% of all opioids are prescribed for low back or neck pain. Uh, and we now have this opioid epidemic, which is a huge problem. And some randomized trials showing that, in fact, opioids are not much better than other non-opioid groups uh, of, of medications. So we're dealing with a problem in low and middle income countries where the disability is probably higher than it is, and the prevalence is probably higher than it is in high income countries where there's virtually no treatment and where there's an attempt to mimic what's being done in high-income countries. In other words, attempt to provide surgical and pharmaceutical care and ignoring current guidelines and evidence. So <clears throat> what we have done is created this Noble Spine Care Initiative and looked at guidelines for six types of intervention. The first being assessment intervention. What, what, how should people with spine problems be assessed? 
The second is how sh is non-invasive uh, uh, non care uh, interventions. The third is invasive interventions. The fourth is um, psychosocial interventions. Then you have public health interventions and you have surgical interventions. And each one of these chapters have now been published. And I, I note that you have listed two of them in the, in the request for this interview, but you've got to put them all in perspective. They don't, each one is, when you're dealing with a patient, you've got to look at all six components of how you're going to treat a patient. You've got to assess them. You've got to determine their psychosocial uh, uh, status. You've, you, or, and whether they need a psychosocial intervention, you've got to look at uh, the options for non-invasive care within the guidelines and current evidence for invasive care, for psycho psychological care or cognitive behavioral care, and for public health care. Uh, and this is something now which is becoming increasingly important. So when we move into the... Uh, the world of, of low and middle income, we've got to then take these six interventions and see how we can make it easy for people to try and include them into communities. Uh, we've done this by means of, uh, of developing a classification system, which is not yet published, a uh, care pathway, uh, at, which offers uh, what is suggests what the evidence is right now for each of the different types of patients with spine problems which could walk into your door, uh, a physician's door, uh, the resources necessary, the type of training necessary, and then also how to implement it. So we're getting back to your question. Uh, if we look at uh, the application evidence guidelines in in uh, low and middle income countries what we find is that we have to move from what is most commonly done right now uh, by family physicians and nurses in, in low income countries where all they do is look at a patient say oh i've got back pain they give them an anti-inflammatory medication and next visit they send them off to the hospital uh or or uh to the, to, uh, which also has relatively little care available, and then it's sent to the teaching hospital or the capital tertiary hospital, and surgery is considered an option and or advanced medications and so on. And we've got to move from that to getting people in the community, uh, clinicians in the community, hopefully a primary spine care clinician or somebody who knows how to deal with spinal problems to do the assessment educate the public and determine which patients need to be referred and make sure that patients are who are unlikely to benefit from higher levels of care are given the type of education, exercise and symptomatic care which allows them to function uh, at a higher level in their communities. So that's the, basically how the guideline, uh, how, uh, guidelines are being uh, utilized uh, in low and middle income countries, or at least we hope they will be utilized that way. No, that's, uh, that's fantastic, Scott. You've, you've actually kind of already addressed my, my next question. Uh, so I was, I, 
I, I was going to kind of go into the area of you know, how do we translate some of the recommendations that have come from Global Spine Care Initiative, and particularly, as you mentioned, the sort of the six chapters of those six main components. How do you think we should try to translate all of those recommendations to clinicians and and try to get try to get changes in practice behavior? Well, the, the first thing to realize is that there should be no difference in low middle in, uh, uh, low income and uh, middle income countries. Uh, the way people are treated in low- and middle-income countries and the way they're treated in high-income countries. Guidelines and evidence are guidelines and evidence. So we have, there was a time when we didn't really know what to do and there was no consensus on what uh, was appropriate. Uh, a few years ago, Simon Dajanay and I reviewed guidelines uh, from different countries in the world and they it's amazing how strong the consensus is it's not absolute there are some guidelines which suggest a greater or less emphasis on certain uh, interventions but overall the 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 recommendations of guidelines are very similar so we now clinicians are basically being divided in the community into those who follow guidelines and those who don't follow guidelines. And this can be, this is not just chiropractors, surgeons, family physicians, physiotherapists, and every other group are basically being separated into those who follow guidelines and those who don't. Those who follow guidelines are being given greater strength, greater influence, more patients, uh, higher levels of pay, uh, uh, payment for services, uh, greater authority in their communities, and those who don't uh, follow guidelines are being kind of sidelined to a large extent. And my my biggest concern is that, at least for the chiropractic profession, is that if they fail, if an average chiropractor in the office fails to follow guidelines, they're going to find themselves uh, on the outside, not understanding how come. Their, their funds and fees are being cut, not, not sure why they're not, they, they are not being given the respect they believe they uh, deserve, and also uh, why they're not getting the level of patience that they believe that they should uh, be serving. There's a huge population of patients out there, and those patients are being directed to clinicians who are following guidelines. So that's the rationale behind it. Now, what? So, so what should a clinician consider doing? Well, if you look at the guidelines and you look at the way the Global Spine Care Initiative is 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 addressing this, uh, is by means of a care pathway, so that a patient walks in the door and you've got to decide. Uh, according to the classification system that's being put forward, exactly what type of patient you've got, what kind of spinal problem do you have? Do you have something with just a minor spine problem and no disability? Do you have someone with uh, a, a somewhat more significant spine pain, more level and more disability, someone with severe incapacitating pain, someone with neurological findings, someone with spine uh, deformity? or someone with a what's classically called a red flag uh, serious pathology. 
And then there are subdivisions of that which are based on classification systems that are out there uh, in multiple locations. So a clinician, first of all, has to say to himself or to herself exactly what kind of patient I've got. Then you, you do that by means of the assessment, but it also determines how much assessment you're going to have to do. If a patient comes in, you do a clinical examination, you do a neurological examination, and all you've got is a person with spine pain with some level of disability or no level of disability, then you think to yourself, okay, I don't have to take x-rays or do MRIs and scans or CTs. I need to give this person education, exercise, activity, uh, uh, encourage activity, and some symptomatic relief. And we know spinal manipulation or the adjustment is actually one of the recommended forms of symptomatic relief in virtually every guideline. Not 100%, but most guidelines have incorporated manual therapy or manipulation as one of the treatment options for people who have, uh, for symptomatic relief in people who have spine pain. Then you have to assess the yellow flags and it really the so-called psychosocial yellow flags, which is a series of questions, a very short series of questions, shouldn't take very long, but it lets you know how the person is thinking about their spine problem. Because these, these, these psychosocial questions or yellow flags basically are the strongest predictor of whether somebody will become disabled because of their back pain. It's not the biomechanical findings on an x-ray or MRI scan that determine the level of disability. It's primarily the, the, the attitude or the activity and the behavior of the person who has spine pain. But you always have to look at red flags. You always have to make sure that that one or two percent of the patients that walk in your door who have serious pathology are referred for appropriate therapy uh, or intervention at one of the more teaching hospitals, go through the type of uh, assessment and imaging studies and laboratory studies necessary to determine what's going on, and then uh, receive either pharmacological or uh, uh, surgical care. So the, 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 the clinician, uh, in my mind, the clinician uh, who is the first contact person for a patient with spine pain has very has significant responsibility in guiding the patient and in providing relief. And in most of the world, uh, at least in most of North America, uh, chiropractors are often the very first person a person with spine pain uh, appro is a, uh, approaches for care, or more and more, especially in interdisciplinary centers, becomes the focus of the first referral from nurses and family physicians for people who have uh, a spine problem. So the chiropractor that, uh, is in a unique position to assume control of a person's uh, uh, with spine problem, the care of a person with spine problem, and to coordinate care with the rest of the interdisciplinary team, uh, rehabilitation team, surgical teams, medical specialists, etc. So I, uh, I, I believe the average clinician 
who understands guidelines will feel much more confident in what they're doing, will feel much more pleased in their workload, their patients will be happier, they can justify everything they're doing, and, and overall make for a much more pleasant uh, office experience and professional experience. Oh, that's that's amazing, Scott. Thanks, thanks for that. That's I think that should really provide our listeners and clinicians out there with some some really good directions to to be considering and and making sure that they are looking at the guidelines and keeping up to date and and trying to follow them to their best. Kind of switching directions a little bit. One of the things we wanted to discuss with you is is World Spine Care, um, and we're kind of hoping you could to sort of discuss some of the impact that World Spine Care is having in the different countries where the clinics have been located, and any future projects that you might have, and and how you see the the World Spine Care model continuing to develop. It's very interesting. The World Spine Care model is uh, the World World Spine Care. Let's go back to the beginning. It was actually started ten years ago. Uh, right after the Neck Pain Task Force uh, published its findings, I and a number of us, including Margareta Nortine and, and eventually Jeff Outerbridge, decided that there, there really is no care for probably 80% of the world's population, no spine care for approximately 80% of the world's population. And yet back pain and neck pain is the number one number four causes of, of, of disability. And this is not appropriate. Um, I know we fight in, in North America uh, unreasonably in my feel, in my uh, opinion, uh, for patients. There actually are more patients than we have professionals out there. Uh, but in the most of the world, uh, there is no care. Uh, a recent paper came out and showed that the average time a clinician, uh, a family physician, spends with a patient in 50% of the con- uh, countries in the world is less than five minutes. And if you're only dealing with less than five minutes, it's virtually impossible to reach a conclusion as to what's going on with their spine problems and to offer a reasonable uh, uh, treatment options for them. So we elected to start a charity. And the other second thing is that there is no charity that deals with spine problems anywhere in the world. Uh, there are a number of surgical charities which, which uh, send people to do scoliosis surgery or trauma surgery, uh, but there's no charity that deals with um, uh, attempts to deal with the management of patients that do not have surgical or serious pathology and yet are disabled because of their back pain. Now, there are a number of organizations, including uh, uh, a number of colleges that have been sending out what's been called mission periods, which is you get a bunch of chiropractors or students, you send them off to some community in, in India or in, in uh, uh, Dominican Republic or someone, and they line up, you know, 100,000 patients, and every one of them gets an adjustment, they get very little examination, and they move on to the next one, and everybody gets one adjustment or two adjustments, and then this group of people leave town and think they've done a fabulous job and are wonderful, and it gets lots of public relations, but there's 
almost all the evidence suggests that this does, although it makes the chiropractor look or feel good, has virtually no impact on the burden of disease or the, and is a virtually no benefit to the people who are receiving the treatment. Uh, when we're dealing with spine-related dis, uh, spine disability, we're dealing with a chronic disorder that requires management over a period of time. So the World Spine Care Program uh, was developed to set up clinics in small, remote uh, communities to serve people who currently have no access to care. Uh, we were very fortunate to have Jeff Alderbridge uh, close his office in Ottawa and move to Botswana to, to start the initial program. And he and his wife and two children started to, uh, a clinic in the small village of Shoshong and in the district hospital in, in a town called Mahalape. And these, uh, and Jeff actually put a lot of energy and work into this. When he had completed his stint, we have had a series of uh, chiropractors who have elected to spend one year in Botswana and they come in for, as a clinical director in these clinics uh, in Shoshone Mahalape and more recently in, in, in the, the capital in Gaborone and they spend a year and they treat and teach the community uh, how to deal with their spine, and 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 they treat people on it over a long peri period of time, much that they like they would be treated in in North America, and according to current evidence-based guidelines, a very strict adherence to evidence-based guidelines. So they they uh, manage these patients. They set up educational programs in the school, uh, so the kids know that they got to keep movement and keep active and look after themselves. Uh, set up a, a village-related exercise programs or yoga. Pro the ones we've been doing are focused mostly on yoga in the community. And, and then also uh, <clears throat> uh, things like scoliosis screening of school children uh, in the schools. And this has all been done by volunteers, uh, many of them from Canada, but now some from Europe and from the United States and from Australia and South Africa. And so this group of, of, of young chiropractors are basically dedicating a peer to their life to help people who have no access to care. When we realized that that model was working quite well, we established a second model, a second clinic in the Dominican Republic. And we've had a number of volunteers who are now going to this clinic in the Dominican Republic and doing exactly the same thing, providing care. Uh, and, and what is fascinating about these volunteers, the experience is phenomenal. First of all, they see more serious pathology in one month in, the, in these clinics than they would in their entire education at, at CMCC or Palmer. Their confidence in how to manage people with spine pain just goes through the roof. The ability to work with other professionals increases remarkably. You can even in, in both Dominican Republic and in Botswana, you can, if you have a patient that requires surgery, you can go scrub and watch the surgery being carried out uh, on your patient. And so that's a, a, an amazing experience for many that they found. So it, 
so that these long-term volunteers go for a year, of course, can't manage the workload. So we've had an even greater number of volunteers that come out for anywhere from one month to three months. And these volunteers come in, they are taught the principles of evidence-based care by the by the person who's there, by the clinical supervisor in that community, in that clinic, uh, and then they uh, begin treating patients, assessing treating patients, going into the community, and providing education to the community, and they also can work in the hospitals. So the model seems to be working very well. We have, we're starting clinics right now in, in Ghana. We have a, a memorandum of understanding with the government of, uh, with a, um, a hospital in Ghana and another one in India uh, in, uh, in association with the Mahatma Gandhi uh, uh, University. And it is actually uh, developing uh, and expanding quite rapidly. Um, our... Uh, and, and we'll, the, the Global Spine Care Initiative uh, guidelines will be incorporated more and more into these programs. What we are needing right now, the, the, in, the two factors that seem to be inhibiting our ability to expand further, is that our need for volunteers is increasing very rapidly. Uh, it, it's, uh, we could deal with twice as many volunteers and still have room for more. Uh, we could, and, and a lack of funding. And what's always amazing me, to me, when I go to a chiropractic meeting or even a spine meeting, orthopedic meeting, I always ask everybody in the audience, what do any of you give funding to the Cancer Foundation, the Diabetes Foundation, the Breast Cancer Foundation, the, Di uh, the Multiple Sclerosis Foundation, or any of these other diseases. And virtually everybody puts their hand up. And I said, okay, every one of you are dealing with spine problems. How many of you give to a spine-related charity or foundation? And virtually nobody puts their hand. And I say to myself, if you're dealing, if the people who are actually treating people with spine problems aren't willing to, or don't feel it's important enough to donate some of their philanthropic donations to, uh, to a spine problem, how can we expect that others, uh, other people who are not actively treating patients to, be, to support such a program? So I think it's a cultural change within the chiropractic world and even the surgical world that we have to start thinking of spine problems as a major problem and a recognition that we are responsible not just for spine problems in our practice, but for people who have spinal disorders throughout the world. Oh, that's, uh, that's really great, Scott. One of the things I was also hoping you can maybe talk about is I know there's... Uh, you know, the sustainability of some of the clinics, uh, like for example in Botswana, um, I know uh, Palmer Palmer College and and CMCC both have both had students from from Botswana there. Could you talk a bit about how you know the sustainability model that you have yeah. with World Spine Care? Yes, uh, that that's extremely important. As I mentioned at the very beginning of this discussion, we um, uh, when you're managing people with spine problems, you have to develop a long-term program because people, uh, as anybody who treats people, uh, any chiropractor will tell you. 
I have patients that have been coming to me for years, whenever they have a recurrence episode or being treated, needing treatment on and off uh, for years. So you have, you can't, as I said before, you can't just come in uh, and and even spend one year in a place and think you're going to have a long-term impact. So every one of our programs or 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 are done in conjunction with the government of the community. We insist on having a memorandum of understanding with either a government or a big major hospital or a health system or a university system so that they, and in that, they agree to a long-term um, sustainable type of program, not a short-term uh, program. And then we are fortunate uh, to have uh, a number of colleges, including uh, primarily CMCC and Palmer, but also the National College and European College in, in England have offered scholarships, tuition-free scholarships for people from these communities to come in and, uh, and, and study chiropractic with the goal of going back and taking over the clinics. The, um, uh, we, we've done similarly th uh, things for surgeons where we'll take orthopedic, we've taken at least one orthopedic surgeon, we have plans for others from uh, Botswana, and they have gone and done a one-year fellowship in advanced spine surgery and come back to offer surgery. And so that's a, somebody that the primary spine care clinician in the community can refer to with a high uh, level of confidence when they have serious pathology. But <clears throat> the, again, all we are arranging is a tuition-free scholarship. The government of the country has to provide the, the living expenses. So in Botswana, and it looks like we're going to have one shortly in Dominican Republic, uh, the government says, okay, we'll support your education, your living expenses to become a chiropractor. But when you come back, you we will employ you as a government employee, but you have to work in the spine, World Spine Care Clinics. So the, the, uh, new, the young chiropractors who have just graduated from Palmer and shortly from CMCC will be going back into the community and, and uh, will be hired by the government in Botswana and will go and serve the clinics. But what's fascinating Botswana is they felt, the government there felt that what we were doing was so important that they actually have provided full salaries for our chiropractic volunteers at the Shoshone Clinic, at the community hospital, the district hospital, and now in the tertiary clinic, uh, and at a salary level which is equivalent to an expatriate medical physician salary. So we now have uh, our volunteers being paid full salaries in order to continue their treatment in these communities. And it looks like the Dominican Republic may do the same thing. And this allows and ensures that the program is sustained over the long term and that care is provided. Uh, the care of spine problems is actually uh, uh, enhanced throughout uh, these communities. We've each even been asked 
kind of informally whether we would help develop an entire uh, country or nationwide spine care program in Botswana. Not sure we have the resources to do that, but it's a real um, indication of, of, of the success of, the, of what we're trying to do. Oh, it's it's great to see the value and importance that uh, that the the countries are are placing on this problem and and on the services that uh, that you're able to bring to them. Yeah, it's it's really really great for our listeners to hear. And uh, and unfortunately, we're going to have to to wrap up the podcast. Um, we we really would like to thank you for your your time, Scott. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. And um, for, for the listeners of the show, it's that time of the show where we'd like to ask you for a favor. We'd like you to visit the European Spine Journal for access to these articles that we mentioned. And I'll include links to them in our CCGI Facebook group and on the website so you can access them easily. Yeah, and I'd also like to mention that, uh, that Dr. Zouderbridge and Dr. Haldeman um, published an article in the, in the most recent JCCA all about the world, world spine care. Uh, so if anyone's looking for more information, they can they can look to that article. And I'd also like to encourage everybody to go to the World Spine Care website and and check out some of the resources there. And and as Dr. Haldeman indicated, uh, if you it may be a good uh, a good time for us to all start considering where we put our charitable donations when it comes to uh, when it comes to spinal conditions. And again, thanks everybody for for tuning in. And we'd like we look forward to bringing in our next guest in a couple of weeks. Bye for now. <laughs>